Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the RC Report. I am your host, Ronnie Carlton, better known as RC, of course, aptly named. I have with me Sam Monson of Pro Football Focus. He is a senior analyst, and he is my favorite analyst by far on Pro Football Focus. It's a wonderful site that I want to introduce a lot of the people that follow my blog, too. If you don't already follow it, you know I use it and reference it a lot. How are you today, Sam? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Uh, First, I just wanted to give people, I know, I think Pro Football Focus has taken the NFL world by storm, but I think it's the early adapters that are into it. I think sometimes the tried and true fans still going by basic stats, which are still useful, but explain to our listeners what Pro Football Focus is and what you guys do. We uh, we are a player evaluation site. So we started off, and the idea was, let's see who's really playing well and who's really playing badly, and we'll start grading these guys on every single play um, and every single game and try and get a handle on who's actually playing well and not just rely on some base stats or some um, announcers telling you who the best guys in the league are. So when we started way back when, we just started doing that, going through every single game and, and grading guys either you know, plus or minus and zero if they, they just did their job. It was just a, an expected play from either side. Um, and then you know, we've expanded and you trot up all those plays from every single player in every single game and you get this league-wide baseline and you can start to see who the, the really good players are and who the bad players are. And, Start to get a start to quantify all of this football stuff that we just kind of take for granted and go with gut feeling and highlights on. How did you become involved with TFF? Um, I I was one of the first guys in the door. Neil Hornsby is the guy that set up the website. He's a, a fan from the UK, um, and he had this idea years ago and decided that he wanted to to start trying to set up a system to grade all these guys. So. He needed somebody to help him do games. You know, there's, there's a lot of games in an NFL season, way more than one guy can cope with. So he brought in Ben Stockwell. He was the first guy in to help him do games, and then I was the second guy. And myself and Ben knew Neil from just an online NFL forum. It was the, the NFL's UK's official site. We, we were all members of that, just a, an online chat forum. Um, so he, he knew us from there and asked us if we wanted to come and help him do games, and that's where it started. If people haven't figured it out yet, you are from the U.K. Which country are you from, and how popular is uh, the NFL in the U.K.? Yeah, well, I'm from Ireland, which is a little bit different, close to the U.K., but in the same ballpark. Okay. Um, gotcha. It's it's pretty popular over here. It's it's a niche sport. You know, it's small, but it's growing. Um, and I, Obviously, things like the Wembley Games and all that kind of stuff helps grow the uh, grow the sport over here, and there's a you know, an amateur scene, people playing it uh, at an amateur level over here. It's, it's. I don't think it's ever going to be the main sport over here, but it, it's, it's growing, and it's, it's the access to everything, it being on TV and being easy to follow with the internet and all that kind of stuff. It's becoming a bigger sport and a, a bigger part of people's consciousness. The one criticism that I hear over and over again of pro football focus, I think it's somewhat valid, but I think you have a good answer. I've heard your answer before, but. Uh, the criticism I constantly hear is when you're grading a play and you don't know the intention of the play beforehand, then how how can you figure out who's to blame for a particular play? Or who's the there, yeah, there's, there's a few things to that. The first part is that we only grade what a player tried to do. So if a guy ends up blocking a defensive tackle, takes him to the ground, dominates him in that block, We'll give him a positive for that, even if he was supposed to, on paper, go and get the linebacker at the second level and screwed up his assignment. Because, you know, what he attempted to do, he did very well. And maybe we got that wrong according to what the coach wants him to do. But guys that make that kind of mental mistake regularly don't succeed. You know, in the long term, it's going to bear itself out as those guys are good players if they're getting things done right, if they're making mental screw-ups every single play they're not going to be on the field for that long. Um, The other thing is that, you know, it sounds like the kind of thing that makes a lot of sense. You're, you're not in the coach's room. You don't know what a play is supposed to look like, but a lot of this stuff is easy enough to work out. If you're prepared to dig around for the knowledge and you're prepared to watch it enough times inside zone is inside zone. Pretty much every single NFL team runs it in exactly the same way. 
same with a whole bunch of these concepts. Everybody, by and large, is working not from the same playbook, but from plays that have existed for years, and they don't have that many wrinkles to them in terms of exactly how you want it running and assignment football and that kind of stuff. And all of these things work on the basis that you need somebody to pick up everybody on the defense, you know, from an offense point of view. So if somebody is free running, it's a case of working out which one of the guys in the chain is doing something that doesn't fit everybody else. You know, you're going to have 10 guys that are doing something that makes sense. And one guy is going to be out of kilter. And sometimes you're not going to be able to tell exactly who blew it. And when that happens, you know, we will, we'll zero grade the guys. We won't guess. We'll just put it down there as a, a play that we weren't able to diagnose. But we also have cons- uh, consultation from NFL coaches, a group called the PCA and the Pro Coaches Network um, consults with us, and we can refer plays to these guys, anything we can't work out ourselves. Um, and then the ultimate, the, the final thing to all that is that if it was that difficult to, to go through tape and to not be able to diagnose anything without being in the room, you know, teams wouldn't be able to do it when they're scouting opposition. You know, the Patriots would not be able to go and look at Cowboys tape and, and break down what was going on because they don't know it's what the calls were in Cowboys, in the Cowboys uh, playbook. But they do because, you know, you can work out most things. There are going to be some plays that lead you astray, and there's going to be the occasional play that, you know, without knowing a specific thing, a specific call, you're not going to be able to tell and you're going to screw up. But it's such a small percentage of the number of plays you're doing over the course of the season that it's it's just a kind of, you know, it's a margin of error in the system, but it's not enough to skew the entire grading process away from where it should be. Would you agree that when you're studying film, and I'm an amateur film studier, would you agree that it's more concepts and, yeah, it's more of a, it's more conceptual, whereas you'll see these same concepts throughout different teams, and so if you have a dagger route, like if you watch film long enough, I know what a dagger route looks like. I don't have to have, it's not as complicated as people make it out to be once you have studied and learned the concept. I think that's true with, with most tape study, you know, that if you, if you have a very basic level of knowledge, everything will look pretty complex, but once you start to improve what you know, and we've all been doing that, you know, right from the start, we didn't know anything like what we know now when we started doing this. And the same thing is true with NFL coaches. You know, these guys, even head coaches, Mike Shanahan, when he got fired, took a year and went, you know, sitting with these other coaches in college and started trying to pick up what these guys know, and what these guys are doing. So nobody that's that's kind of employed watching football or learning about football has ever ever knows it all. Everybody is looking to learn from somebody else and develop their knowledge base. And it really is, it's just about how much you know. You know, some of this stuff is simple enough once you know what you're looking for and know what the play should look like. And it's easy enough to diagnose the spot where it broke down, you know, where one guy screwed up his assignment or one guy got beat in a way that he shouldn't have. And it's just a case of pinpointing where the play broke down and exactly what part of the the chain broke what part of the chain failed two-part question do you think or or just your general analysis of how pff has been embraced by the league itself the nfl and how it's been embraced by the media um i think the media was always pretty quick to to embrace it because we give them information or we gave them information or access to information and that's that's part of what the media does is they trade off information, you know, so a lot of these, a lot of times these guys aren't watching a huge amount of tape. They don't really know, certainly outside of their beat, you know, beat writer might know all the Patriots players, but if they sign a guy from Detroit, he doesn't know anything about that guy. Um, so we, we, they've always been pretty quick to embrace us because we could instantly tell a guy something about the, the guy they just signed from Detroit beyond the number of starts he had. We could start giving them data and, whether he's any good or not and what statistics he has and what plays he's made and all this kind of stuff. The NFL, I think, was slower to do it because they're, it's a very closed institution, the NFL. It's difficult to break in. And it's tough to get in front of these guys, you know. And I think every time we've been able to get in front of pretty much anybody in an organization, they come away impressed with the information and really excited about what the data can do for them and, and what they can do with the data, 
and it's just a case of working your way up the organization. You know, you get meetings initially with their analytics guy, and then he brings you to uh, you know personnel guy, and the person. And then you got to get the coaches on board and and the GM, and it's, it's just a case of working your way through all these systems. So it's taken us a few years, but now we have 22 NFL teams that have that are paying for the data that have bought into PFF. Um, and I think eventually it'll be probably all 32. Maybe we'll have one or two stubborn holdouts, but eventually every team sees the value in what we do. Now let's get to the draft. You love, in your latest mock draft, you have DeForest Buckner as your number one pick going to the Titans, and you have shown a lot of love for him throughout this process since you've been commenting. Uh, what, what do you see in him? Tell our listeners uh, what you like about him. So one of the interesting things about us now doing college and, and grading every single player in college is that we are able to bring the PFF kind of quantif- quantifying process to college. So instead of just going, you know, tackles, tackles for loss, sacks, and, and drawing up this really rough list of, of statistics, we actually look at his, his play-by-play grading and his for every single, for every single player. And DeForest Buckner has been one of the most productive players in football in, in the FBS for the last couple of seasons. And this year he was absolutely dominant and it didn't necessarily result in a 20 sack season, but he was just destroying people as a pass rusher, destroying people in the run game, consistently making a real nuisance of himself and I think that people just overthink it sometimes. You look at Buckner and people start going through his tape and people start nitpicking in terms of he's not the best athlete in the world and sometimes he gets lost in space against, you know, really quick, shifty athletes and this kind of thing. You know, which is not exactly unexpected for a guy who's like six nine and 290 pounds. But the bottom line is he's just been incredibly productive. And I think as long as you're looking into a, pr- a production in the right terms, as in the broadest possible spectrum rather than just a small snapshot of, of key statistics, I think production will translate. And I, I think it did last year when we were really high on a guy like um, Henry Anderson from Stanford, now with the, the Indianapolis Colts. And we were saying, look, this guy is as good as Leonard Williams, if not better. And But there was like a you know one, two, three round difference in terms of where people thought they were they should go. And for half a season before Henry Anderson got injured, he was playing every bit as well as Leonard Williams. So DeForest Buckner is the next guy who comes along and we said, look, this guy has been the most productive interior defender in the nation by a distance this year. I I, I wouldn't overthink that. You know, I think that's going to translate pretty quickly to the NFL. And I don't care that occasionally a five foot eight running back will beat him in the backfield for speed. I think um, I think with these kind of guys that aren't speed rushers, people have a hard time evaluating them. I guess I guess because it's more subtle, you don't expect him to get. I think it's more subtle than that. But um, you can discuss that. Also, the concept I think gets on your nerves too, because this happened with Henry, Henry Anderson. I listen to almost every podcast that you do uh, about getting knocked on their butt. Can you talk about how you feel like that's overrated when you see D line and get knocked down? Yeah, it's one of those. You get a lot of scout terms that come up this time of year, and there's things that there's hot button things that scouts seem to be really irritated by, and one of them is is a guy ending up on the ground a lot, and it's it's not like it's a good thing to end up on the ground regularly, and it's but you have to look at what's happening. You know, sometimes J.J. Watt ends up on the ground a ton, but he's usually in the backfield screwing up the play at the time and at least forcing a guy to cut somewhere else at which point it's probably a net positive for him, or at least on those plays, it's a net positive. So Henry Anderson had a similar thing. He plays sometimes too high, plays with a narrow base, and ends up on the ground a lot. But again, a lot of the time it was in the backfield, forcing the running back to cut or forcing the quarterback off his spot, making a move. Those are positive plays. Now, sometimes that will it does surface in other areas in that you know he was vulnerable to being crushed at times by double teams because he plays high and narrow and that kind of thing but it's all about where the net gain or net loss is and for a guy like Henry Anderson it was definitely a positive you know people said that he was on the ground too much he, he just looked at the tape and looked at the numbers and the production said you know what it may be a flaw but I don't care 
it, it doesn't it's not doesn't make it doesn't stop him being a very productive player. Um, and I think that's true for any any guy that's that productive. Maybe the maybe you want him to have a, a better base and not end up on the ground that much. But if he's that productive whilst doing that, who cares? Philosophically, for defensive linemen, and this is something because I'm better with offense as far as film study goes. I was last year in the draft, I started to delve into it. What do you, when you're looking at film, what do you consider a win for a defensive lineman? It depends on the play. I mean, everybody looks for a sack in terms of a pass rusher, but if you can just move move the quarterback off his spot, you have a you're winning because. Anytime a quarterback moves over the long haul, his passer rating drops by like 20 points. So even if you're not even, even if you're not dramatically pressuring him, if you just make him come off his spot at the top of his drop, you're having an effect long term on how productive that guy is as a passer. So the same thing happens if you pressure him. If you pressure him in a, in a major way, it drops even further. So obviously a sack is what you want. That's the play that everybody looks for. But you have a significant impact on the opponent's. Um, passing productivity, if you can just pressure the guy and you can just get in his face and disrupt the play sometimes. So sacks are, are definitely important than what you want to see, but if a guy has a low sack total and yet will gets a lot of pressures, has a high number of pressures and hits and all that kind of stuff, he can be a good player and a good pass rusher and a guy who's winning a lot even without generating the sacks. And usually the sacks follow, you know, there are certain guys every now and again that get a lot of pressures and don't convert them to sacks. But usually a guy that consistently gets a lot of pressure eventually gets the sacks. They just don't always follow. Um, in the run game, I mean, it can be anything. It can be shooting a gap, getting into the backfield, taking a guy down for a big loss. That's an obvious win. But it can also be just standing a guy up and forcing a cut or squeezing the hole or even just occupying a second block so that this guy can't get through to a linebacker who ends up making the play. There's a lot of really subtle ways that a defensive lineman can win in the run game, and they don't always look like big splash plays. You know, the, um, Aaron Donald is a guy who, he's like 285 pounds, but he plays the run as well as anybody else. He's just not doing it in the same way necessarily. There are plays where he will beat a guy really quickly inside, beat a down block, and that will screw up a pull block that was coming from the backside who doesn't get through to a guy, to a linebacker waiting on the front side. And this guy has an easy cleanup sack or an easy cleanup tackle for loss. Rather, it looks like a great play from the linebacker, but in reality, he basically had nothing to do because he was unblocked because Aaron Donald screwed up the pull block. And it's the kind of thing that you need to, it's a little more difficult to find. It's not as obvious, but those are, great plays against the the run and big wins for the def, the defense that you're not necessarily going to see just from the first glance. You have, uh, there's a debate obviously going on between which quarterback takes first. In your mock draft, and this is what you would do, so I'm, I'm assuming that you prefer golf over wins. Can you compare those two guys? Yeah, they're they're very interesting because they're completely different kinds of players. I think Goff is the safer guy. He's the guy with the, the higher floor who's done it more consistently over the last couple of years. He's got very good grades for both the last two seasons. Has only been getting better. There's not much that he doesn't do well. But Wentz is the guy that you get captivated by his upside. The arm just looks different to pretty much everybody else in this draft. He, you know, It comes out of his hand so much more lively and so much faster the, the power and, and zip he has in his throws is incredible. His athleticism, I think, is fantastic. There are some concerns with his passing. It's, it's a little erratic. He doesn't always um, put the right level of touch in it, whether it's too much or too little. He often is a little slow to go through his progressions. Um, so there's, there's definitely flaws to his game. and That's why his grade this season, even against FCS competition, wasn't nearly as high as Goff's. But you have to love what he can become in a year or two if he develops in the right way. So it's really about what you want in the guy, whether you want the safe, sure thing, or whether you want the guy who has special upside. So I would lean Goff, but it's it's very difficult to pass up on the kind of potential Wentz does have. So when you're doing, and this is interesting, because with 
with the NFL, it's concrete. Like you don't have to project at all because they're they're not finished products, but they're in the NFL. So they're even though they're improving, you have to judge what they're currently doing. But with the draft, when you look at the draft, do you how much does projection? I know you have a lot of hard numbers, but it's an interesting concept and interesting dichotomy here between projecting what someone will do based on college production. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting topic because we don't know how much to, to there's no way of quantifying that so you don't know how much stock to put in something like that and you get guys that have been pretty productive but just look like they have special upside and, and Wentz is one of those but you get them in any position really you get guys that just look like they have a whole bunch of untapped potential a guy like Robert Kendiche is probably one on the D line um, and then you have to weigh how much do you, does that matter against a guy who's been more productive in college at a proven level, um, but may not have this untapped level of potential? And I, I think when you're talking about the top guys, really guys that are graded really, really well in college, I don't think it necessarily matters if they don't have untapped potential. I think Joey Bosa is a guy that's getting that. There are people that say that Joey Bosa is already maxed out, and this is as good as he'll ever get. And my answer to that is probably okay, I'm fine with that. If Joey Bosa never gets any better, he'll probably still be a really good player in the NFL just, because, just out of what he's doing now. He's too good at what he already does for that to be like a, a problem in the NFL level. Maybe it caps him in terms of how good he can be. And, you know, we may never see him become Lawrence Taylor, but he's a pretty good player already, and I'm, I'm kind of fine with that. Then you get the idea, you know, you get the guys like Robert Kendiche, and there's... The question is, how much better can he become against a guy like Chris Jones, say, who's been, I think, significantly better in terms of production in college, at least the the PFF kind of production that we're talking about, the play-by-play grading. So the question is, you know, right now, Chris Jones is, is obviously a better player to us. But the question is, in a year or in two years' time, if you can get a bit of coaching into Kendiche, how much better can he become? And because it's all based on coaching and how he takes that and how he develops, it's really a complete unknown. And you just have to work out how much to to value that kind of stuff. And I think the danger for NFL teams is that coaches always think they'll be able to fix something. We, You know, we've sat in rooms watching tape with coaches, and you'll watch a guy that's just getting killed regularly, and they'll be saying, you know, just look at those hands. That's easy. That's a simple fix. Just a technique problem. I can fix that. And it happens across all positions. And sometimes they're right. Sometimes it's a really easy fix. The guy takes it straight away, and they've they've made a much better player out of a guy that had a really bad tape. Sometimes they can't fix it, and they get this guy that is now stuck being a bad player with a, a flaw in his technique that they can't get out, and you end up essentially having to write off that guy. Um. And I don't know if anyone has a good handle on which guys are going to take to it well, which guys are not, and therefore how much you can value that stuff going forward. Do you see – you have Jalen Ramsey, number three. Do you see him more as a safety or a corner, or is he just this Tyrone Matthew hybrid, or what do you make of his position, or does it even matter at the next level? Um, I, I started off – and I thought he was a safety. The first time I watched him, I thought this is an Eric Berry type of player, which is a guy that people say is a corner or back, a cornerback or a safety. He could do either coming out, but in reality, it's just a safety at the NFL level. You know, you don't want Eric Berry covering up on any of the fast, quick, decent receivers out wide. Antonio Brown, Julio Jones, AJ Green. It's just not a good idea. Um, but the more I watched, the more I liked him at corner and. Initially, I kind of worried about his change of direction skills and his ability to cover these quick guys, but it it never really became a problem on tape, and yet he was such a dominant force against screens and in the run game, and that's huge, I think. People don't necessarily think about it in, in coverage terms or for cornerbacks, but one of the things that makes Denver's Chris Harris so good is he will destroy screens to his side of the field and, and a lot of those run plays. And Antoine Winfield used to regularly set the tone for that Minnesota Vikings defense by making huge plays against screens and in the run game and that kind of thing. So the way Jalen Ramsey is able to do that, I think, would be huge for a defense if they were playing him at corner. Uh, I think he does have 
versatility, though. I think you can move him into the slot, especially in zone schemes, and potentially get some real productivity out of him. I just think there's probably a couple of things at safety that he can't do, and you just have to work out exactly what positions you can put him in. The only thing that bothers me with him is that, like, some of the nuances of the game, and then some of it could just be natural with the hip tightness and press, and what you talked about with the, the really quick receivers giving him trouble, which I, it, it didn't show up on tape as much as it probably would in the NFL, and you, you didn't have any inter- interceptions. And I know the interceptions aren't all, but you do want, if you take his brain that high, you do want him making plays. And I think a lot of times when he has gotten deep, he just has a lot of catch-up speed and his arms are long and he's able to still stop the play. But do you think any of that, like the nuances and but I, I'm not going to say, it's hard to say he doesn't have ball skills because he deflects them, but the actual making of the play, that's one of the things about a honey badger that makes him so great is that he has a nose for the ball. Yeah, I don't think Ramsey has great hands. Uh, there were a couple of plays last season that he should have intercepted and didn't. It dropped, you know, dropped a clear catch, that kind of thing. That's definitely not one of his strengths, but it's not a it's not a big enough problem that I would be too. I wouldn't drop him down at the draft board for it. I think you just have to accept that he's going to leave some plays on the table, and you know we've seen that with um, Eric Weddle for years in, in San Diego. He, he's been a fantastic safety, one of the league's best for the the last few years. But he always struggled to, to catch the ball, if you like. There's always plays that he could have had that he didn't, um, which obviously those are big plays and you want to have those, but you can live with it. As long as he's not letting the opposition make the play, you can accept the fact that he hasn't got you the ball in, in the same process. I think Ramsey does so many good things that I'll live with the fact that he'll drop a pick every now and again. You don't have... Um... Ezekiel Elliott as the number four pick. You have Joey Bosa, but I've seen I've seen it in a lot of mock drafts where Zeke is the number four pick. What is your take on the value of running backs? And obviously, there's this debate. It's almost it's almost trite at this point to say you can find one anywhere. What's your take on the value of the running back in today's NFL? I think he's worth the number four overall pick. I, I wouldn't have a problem with Dallas doing it. Just the way my mock fell. Joey Bosa was on the board at four. And I think if Joey Bosa is on the board at four, bearing in mind that he could easily be the number one overall pick, um, I think the Cowboys would be nuts to pass him up. Pass him up. I think Zeke is a really, really good um, running back. Uh, he may be the best prospect to come along in a, in a good number of years because he's, he's the most complete prospect to come along in years. If you look at, you know, Urban Meyer, I think, said that he was the best player he's ever coached without the ball in his hands. And, I, you know, in a way, that kind of sounds like a, uh, a damning indictment of his running ability. But I think the point he's making is that he does all of the other things really, really well. He's a fantastic blocker, both in the run game for those Ohio State quarterbacks that would run a lot and um, as a pass protector. You know, they had him pass blocking a lot. And that's one area that young running backs usually struggle with. They come, most of these guys in college are true scat backs, which is a running back without any responsibility in pass protection. They're, they're receivers. They're not supposed to stay in and block. But Zeke is different. Zeke had a big role in pass protection in that offense. And it's not just – they weren't even um, pass blocks where he was – just take the guy that comes off your side. He was running some complicated things where he would have full field reads. He would have to cross the quarterback's face to make a block. There was a lot of stuff, some serious high-level NFL-style pass-blocking assignments. And, you know, you hear about these guys that struggle pass-blocking in year one, year two, and you basically can't have them on the field for a lot of passing downs because you can't trust them to pick up a blitz. Zeke can be on the field for every single down. He can run the ball really well. Maybe it's not Adrian Peterson or Todd Gurley with the ball in his hands, but it's not a million miles away either. He's still a very good running back. And then you add in the ability as a receiver, you add in the ability to pass block, to to run block. You've got this complete back, and I think he's well worth um, number four or anywhere in that top ten. I think running back has been devalued, at least in terms of, um, being able to get a guy that can do a job more or less anywhere. But you still see the impact that really, really good running backs have on an offense. Look at the Rams last year when Todd Gurley came there. 
you know, they've been getting by with half-decent runners for a while, but you add a guy like Gurley in, and suddenly it's a different unit completely. And I think the same thing's true with Zeke. He's that good. And, and for the record, folks, you have to check out uh, Sam's mock draft, but he has an eight going to Philly, so he's still going very high. And you also have said that you feel like he may be the most complete back since Adrian Peterson. How do you compare? How would you take him, or would you take him over Gurley if you were drafting and you both getting them both out of college? Would you take Zeke over Gurley? Yeah, so I think they're different. I, he, he's the most complete back to come along in a long time, and he might be the best back since the best prospect since Adrian Peterson. I, they're different. I mean, as purely a runner, with the ball in their hands, Todd Gurley is probably a better player. But like I said, I don't think it's that it's that big a gap. But Zeke is better as a blocker. He's probably a better receiver. He's better at all the other things. Um, so in terms of overall, I think they're pretty close. Um, I think you know it's just a case of what you want in a running back. And I think now the thing that's most valuable for a running back is being able to do everything and being able to give you the ability to have him on there on, on all downs and not tip what you're doing. You know, there's a place for situational guys in today's NFL, but I think it helps your offense if you can have a guy there that doesn't suggest what you're going to run. You have Sheldon Rankins of Louisville going to Jacksonville at number five, and he's that's a lot higher than any of the other mock drafts I think that I've seen. What do you see in him? I'm also very high on him. He's in my top ten overall. Uh, I think we have him higher than the average draft pick. Yeah, I think he's a really good player. He's a guy that's scheme diverse. He's not locked into being a 4-3 defensive tackle or a 3-4 He can play pretty much anywhere along the defensive front and be consistently disruptive in pretty much every way. You know, He can rush the pass or he can get push in the run game. He can do an awful lot of things. Um, maybe the Jacksonville thing is not the best fit in the world. They they signed Malik Jackson, and I don't think that's going to keep you from drafting a, a top guy, but they also have some Derek Marks, who is coming back from injury. It, it kind of depends what their plans are for him long term. But I think Rankins is good enough to be in the conversation at that kind of level in the draft. I agree. Shaq Lawson, you have him uh, going to Tampa Bay, and there are some, there's some even that think Dodd is uh, better than Lawson, but what what's your take on Lawson, and what's your take overall on the edge rushers in this draft? Yeah, I'm not I'm not in love with the edge rushing class in this draft. I don't think it's the uh, the best group that has come along in a while. I don't see that many devastating pass rushers. These guys that can just destroy people around the edge. I see a lot of good players, um, and I think both Shaq Lawson and Kevin Dodd fall into that good category. I think they're pretty close, actually. I don't think there's that much in it. And they're relatively similar players as well in terms of they're both guys who can play the run well as well as rush the passer. They can both get pressure, but I don't think either one of them is, you know, this Cameron Wake-style devastating pass rush guy on the edge. Um, They're interesting guys in that we have them actually graded very closely as well. So I think both guys are solid. Both guys are well-rounded. Both guys will do a job pretty quickly. Um, and I think useful players to have. But anybody looking for a, a devastating pass rusher in this draft, I think is probably going to be searching. You had Miles Jack going to the Giants at 10. I believe that Miles Jack is the best player in this draft. He certainly is in contention for the best athlete. What he looked like as a pro I'm not sure. I know you don't necessarily like pro comparisons, but where does he win as a successful pro? Yeah, I think the first thing teams need to do is work out where they want to play him. You know, he's one of those guys that in college was used as this matchup player on defense and this movable chess piece, the way Tyron Matthew gets used and the way Jalen Ramsey could potentially get used at the next level. And, the NFL, I think, is very conservative, and there aren't too many teams, I think, willing to do that with a player yet. At least maybe the league is going more in that direction, but right now there aren't many teams that will take a Tyron Matthew or a Miles Jack and use them to the fullest of their potential in terms of letting them play multiple different positions and move around to kind of match up with specific problem players on offense. I suspect what happens is that a team will take him and just plug him in at linebacker, and you'll see Miles Jack just playing linebacker. And 
I think he'll be a very good linebacker. He's a really good coverage player. He's got exceptional movement skills, the ability to roll with receivers and to cover guys than most linebackers can't. I think he's, he's got the ability to thump in the run game as well. You'll see him take on offensive linemen at the line of scrimmage and jack those guys back. I think he has huge potential. I also think people might be getting a little bit carried away in terms of just how good he is. Um, I'm raising my hand now visibly, but continue. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe he'll become that guy. I just don't know that he is quite yet and whether he'll ever necessarily get there. But I think he's clearly the best linebacker available in this draft. Yeah, you have Vernon Hargraves going number 11 to the Bears. Why did you think that was the best fit for the Bears? I think Hargreaves is the best fit schematically for the Bears. I actually don't – I think William Jackson is probably a better corner than Vernon Hargreaves, but I think Hargreaves might be a better fit for Chicago. So I kind of flipped the two of them in, in terms of big board versus, uh, versus the mock draft. But he, he's a guy that is very instinctive. I think he can play man and zone. Um, and the Bears run a bit of both. They're more of a zone team, but they run enough man for you to need the guy to be able to do it. Um, and Hargreaves, I think, can do that and be, um, make plays on the ball in these zone schemes, jump on a few routes. If you can, The only real flaw in his game is he's a little bit of a gambler. I think he, he jumps too much on those um, underneath routes, the first route, and can occasionally get beaten on double moves, which is potentially less of a problem in zone schemes in the NFL where you may have safety help over the top and also where you're going to have some help underneath that you can actually rely on. You know, in the college game, even if you're supposed to have a guy underneath covering the flat, the chances of him actually being there and being where you need him to be, especially with those wide hashes, is pretty minimal. So I think that's why you get a lot of these guys very vulnerable to double moves in college because they just they play as if there is no underneath help, which most of the time essentially there isn't. In the NFL, you're going to have that, so you can be a bit more disciplined and gamble a little less. I think if that happens, you've got a really good player in Hargreaves. If it doesn't and he still gambles, you get something akin to Janoris Jenkins where you're going to have the big plays, but you're going to have the bad plays going the other way too. You are very high on William Jackson third, and we just mentioned him briefly, calling him perhaps the best corner, pure corner prospect in the draft. He's a little bit off the radar. Why don't you think he's gotten more attention, and what's your overall take on him? I'm actually not sure why he doesn't have – more hype or why he isn't seen as a more surefire first round pick from pretty much everybody because he's got all the movement skills you want to see he blew things up at the combine he had one of the best performances there ran in the four threes jumps all the the numbers you want to see had he fits the height weight size profile that everybody wants to see from a corner which is i think more important in this draft because a lot of guys don't you know we're talking about vernon hargreaves and mckenzie alexander those are both guys under 5'11", whereas uh, William Jackson is over six feet. So he fits the, the profile that NFL teams want, and I think he'll be higher on some boards than others. You know, teams that like big corners, I think will love this guy. But other than playing at Houston and therefore having some kind of strength of opposition questions, I really don't see why everybody doesn't have this guy way up in the first round because his coverage grade last season for us was fantastic. I think it was second in the nation. Um, he's just been a very good player and fits all the, the or ticks all the boxes that NFL teams have. Between, between the corners in this particular draft class, when we look at Jackson, Kenzie Alexander, Apple, and Apple, who, how would you rank those guys? Or how would you rank the corners in general, taking out Ramsey? Yeah, I think Ramsey is is a special case at the top as this hybrid guy. I then have, I think it's William Jackson, um, Vernon Hargreaves, Mackenzie Alexander. I think all those three guys in that order are very close together. And to an extent, it's going to be a case of what you want in the corner. You know, I already said that I think the Bears would choose Hargreaves over Jackson um, and Alexander. So I think you can flip the order a little bit depending on what kind of corner you want. Then I think the next guy is Eli Apple. I think those are the top five and the only guys, I think, that have any shot of going in the first round. Um, And I think Apple is a a bit below the other group. 
Uh, the Rams, number 15, you had the Rams selecting Corey Coleman from Baylor. Does it bother you? And this is a debate about Baylor receivers anyway, but the limited route tree, does that bother you when you're evaluating him and other receivers of his ilk? It doesn't for Coleman because his route running is so slick and so savvy in the limited routes that he does run. I don't, I don't see it. I don't see any reason he wouldn't be able to learn the rest of the route tree. Um, you know, you do, you see so much good from him running routes that I think it's not going to be a problem. It's definitely irritating in terms of trying to evaluate these guys because literally in that Baylor offense, you're looking at receiver screens, slants, hitches, and goes, and basically nothing else. I think he has something like seven targets, or is it 12 targets, seven receptions last year on routes that weren't those four. So yeah, it's just so, you know, it's such a minimal amount of game that they're running or the, and the route tree they're running compared with an NFL offense that it's definitely frustrating. But I think he does enough in those routes and, and runs them in a sophisticated enough way, shows that he has the ability to set up defensive backs and understand how to get open on those. And he got open so consistently compared with anybody else, even guys running those uh, Baylor-type spread offenses, that I'm not hugely concerned with it for him. Um, I'd be more concerned with it for guys like Kiaris Garrett from Tulsa lower down in the draft because he doesn't have the same kind of natural route-running skills and the, he doesn't have the same tape as Corey Coleman. So I think for some guys it's an issue. For Coleman in particular, I'm not worried about it. This is the part of the draft where you got into the receivers a little bit. You had Coleman going 15 to the Rams. You have Dotson going 17 to the Atlanta Falcons. Sterling Shepard, number 22, to the Houston Texans. And even Michael Thomas going 23rd to the Vikings and 24th to the Bengals with LaCar and Treadwell. But let's talk about Dotson. Um, He's my favorite receiver in the class. He reminds me of Mike Evans a little bit when he was coming out, whereas he can get the separation through physicality, and the 50-50 balls aren't really 50-50 balls when he's involved because most of the time he's going to come down with them. Yeah, he reminds me a lot of A.J. Green, and I don't know why I'm not seeing that come more. I haven't really seen too many people make it, but he's the guy that comes to mind when I see Dachshund. Um And I think he does a lot of things that Green does, which is he's not necessarily the most – uh, explosive receiver in the world. He doesn't seem but as smooth gets... when you say that comparison. He doesn't seem as smooth and fluid as AJ, but the results are similar, I would say. Uh, I think he is in places, and you see sometimes where it doesn't look like he's really open until the ball is in the air, and then he finds an extra yard, you know, finds a way of separating from the DB in the same kind of way that Green can. Um, I think he's, I, I have no problem with anyone who says that he's the best receiver in the draft. I think it's pretty close between him and Coleman. Um, I think it's. I think the conversation is between those two guys. Um, I like a lot of what he does. I think he's a very good fit there, and I do think that he's got the potential. Certainly, very early on, anyway, to be the best receiver in this draft. Does Sterling Shepard have the ability on the next level to play on the outside? We know he's dominant from the slot. He can make a career out of that. But do you think he can play on the outside as well? I think he can play on the outside, but I don't think you want him there every single snap. I think in order to maximize what he does, you want to use him as a slot and a, an outside receiver in the same way that Oklahoma did. He, he you know, it's, it's interesting because a lot of offenses will move guys in and out. You see the Seahawks do it. Um, even the Patriots would line up Wes Welker and Julian Edelman on the outside. And a lot of times it doesn't necessarily matter, but in terms of, every single down being able to go up against the best corner a team has and succeed on the the perimeter outside, he won't do that. But when you move him around inside and outside, um, you know, exploiting route combinations and that kind of thing, I think he's an excellent receiver and can definitely play outside. You know, it's not like he, he's a slot receiver only, which I think a lot of people claim he is and limits his upside. I think he's a kind of multifaceted guy that can do more than one thing. If we were going to look at the consensus, at least from what I've seen, I've, I inhale a lot, I just ingest a lot of draft uh, coverage. The Connor Treadwell seems to be the number one, the consensus number one uh, receiver, and you're not as high on him. I've seen comparisons to DeAndre Hopkins coming out to a uh, Roddy White in his prime. I've seen Dez comparisons. Why, and I think, and I'm more over to your way where maybe Mark might be Colston is a better comparison. Why? What What are you seeing that's different from 
the other people that are making these comparisons. And I think a lot of it goes with how often he can win without creating a lot of separation. Yeah, I, I did a couple of Ole Miss games during the season, and every time I did, I was expecting to see this dominant, awesome receiver, and he just never really showed up. You know, you saw this guy that looked okay, pretty good, could do some things, but he didn't ever blow you away. And the more you look at him after the season, the same thing is true. You go through this tape, and you're just not seeing a whole lot of awesome. You're seeing some good stuff. I don't think he's a bad player. I think he's a guy that's got a role and is limited. And the Marcus Colson comp is actually a really interesting one because I'd been kind of searching around for who he reminded me of and hadn't really come up with a great one and hadn't really worked out how he was going to be really good on the outside at the next level. And then somebody mentioned the Marcus Colson thing and you start thinking of him as this bigger slot receiver, the way the Saints used to use Colson. And that becomes more interesting. But he doesn't get separation. He's not a fast guy. The four six five forty confirmed that for everyone in his pro day. But, I mean, that was obvious on tape anyway. There's not a huge amount of separation anywhere. He, got, he was one of the lowest that we charted in terms of separation on a down-to-down basis. A guy like Corey Coleman was separating almost 70% of the time. Treadwell was under 50% both the last two seasons. So he's just not a guy that's getting open much which some people counter by saying, yeah, but he wins you know, the jump balls, the 50-50 balls, the contested catches. But he doesn't actually. When you look at the percentage of those that he's bringing in, it's way lower than a guy like Doxon. Um, so for a guy whose thing it is to go and win the contested catches, he's not actually that good at doing it. And there are times as well where he doesn't even try and do it. He's not attacking the ball in a way that an Odell Beckham does, You know, going up and trying to high point it and taking it away from smaller defensive back. So I just think there's a lot of flaws to his game. And it's the kind of thing that prevents him from being a really high top pick, but it's not enough to prevent him from being, I think, a, you know, a capable player in the NFL. We're just, I'm not sure what, how good he can be. Yeah, I saw a stat, and this was a non-PFS stat, which I felt like I was almost cheating as far as advanced <laughs> metrics go. Uh, but it basically was saying that 0 to 9 yards, he was – pretty good at contested catches, but when it got into the intermediate 10, 11 to 20, he wasn't as successful with the contested catches. And I think that verifies their data. It needs to match up with uh, the data that you guys. Who is a sleeper? It can be any round. doesn't have to be a first round. But who is a potential sleeper or a guy that nobody's talking about that you think is going to have a very productive pro career? There's a few of them. I, I really like Rashad Higgins, the Colorado State receiver. I think he's, he's really good. I, I would be putting him towards the first round with a lot of these guys. I I'm, I'm, think I'm pretty much out on an island in terms of having him that high. But he looks so good to me. He's incredibly good after the catch. Has this really unusual way of moving and just being able to, to cut to the, the place that the defender isn't. You know, so even if he's not this spectacular athlete, he's just got a way of understanding where to be at any given moment. Um, a cornerback, I really like a guy called Kalen Reed from Southern Miss who I have going, I have as a second-round talent. I think he's nowhere on everybody's boards. He kind of popped up on a lot of radars after his pro day where he ran a 4-3 and jumped 41 and a half inches and, uh, as a vertical, which I think would have tied for the best mark at the Combine this year. But his tape is awesome as well. I think he had the third-highest coverage grade in the draft class this year, makes a lot of plays on the ball, has some of the best plays of any corner this season. Um, and the one other guy that I'll mention, just because I don't think anyone else is going to talk about this guy, is Will Anthony, who was a 3-4 defensive end for Navy um, at 6'1 and 245 pounds, I think, and was incredibly productive this year. Last year, I did a lot of Navy games, and he kind of stood out as being the best player on a Navy defense, which isn't necessarily amazing. But then this year, he kicked on and was way better than last year and I think at that size he's going to end up kicking out to be a a 4-3 defensive end he'll be an edge player as opposed to an interior guy but he was incredibly productive and I think has more than deserved a shot to play in the NFL you know a guy from Navy has always got some complications in terms of time service time and all that kind of stuff that he's got to go through but it's becoming easier to draft guys especially from navy the patriots drafted a long snapper last year from navy um 
it, it's not a reason to not draft him. I, I'd be really interested to see him go and give it give it a shot as a, a four three end um, in the NFL. In turn, who do you think is overvalued, or I hate the word overrated, but a person that people really seem to be high on in the draft community, and you really just don't see it? Uh, I, there's a few of those guys. Um, Maurice Kennedy from Virginia, I don't see that at all. He gets a lot of big plays, but it's basically because he's sitting on three-step drops and coming up and playing those and playing nothing else. You know, there was one play, I can't remember what the game was, but there was a play, oh, it was Notre Dame. Um, he made a great play late in the game where he came from a mile away and broke up um, broke up a, a quick pass, fired in and, and made a great play. But I think two, three plays later, they basically showed him the same look. He came flying up again, and it was a double move, and Will Fuller just had a walk-in touchdown over his head. And I think that's basically going to be what happens to him in the NFL, unless he works out how to actually play stuff over his head and how to pedal and respect anything beyond three steps, he's going to have real problems. And people rank him you know, in the top 10 of their cornerbacks, and I have him down at 28, I think, at the moment. So oh, he's, he's definitely one of the guys. And the last question, what do you – or if there's another guy that you had that you thought, is there another guy that comes on top of your head that you thought is overvalued or think is overvalued? Um, I think Treadwell definitely is in terms of uh, yeah. people talking about him as the best receiver in this draft and the guy that could go in the top 10. I think that's definitely overdoing it. Um, I'm trying to think of somebody else that uh, that leaps out. I'm, I, I'm not wild on um, Austin Hooper, the tight end from Stanford. I think people are talking about him as maybe the second best tight end in the draft. I, I I did a lot of Stanford games the last couple of years, and he didn't really look like he ever did anything particularly well. Gotcha. Last question. When this draft, four years from now, five years from now, ten years from now, who do you think, and if you can't just narrow down to one, that's fine, you can get a couple, but who do you think will be will be or have had the best career when, on, on all is said and done? Yeah, that's tough. I mean, any of these guys in the top 10, I think, have got real high-level ability, and it's always tough trying to work out which one of those guys will actually ultimately have the best career. You know, you look at any draft coming out, it's it's usually not the guy that goes number one necessarily, especially this year where the quarterbacks don't look like they are going to go number one. But I think any one of those guys could have very successful um, NFL careers. I'm just a huge fan of DeForest Buckner. I think that his ceiling is... His ceiling may not be the highest in the, the draft class, but I think his floor is so incredibly high that I'd be surprised if he didn't become a Calais Campbell type of player, which I would say gives you a pretty good shot of having one of the best players in your draft class. Sam, I appreciate this. I'm a big fan of PFF. In particular, I'm a big fan of yours. Thank you for um, dealing with all the technical difficulties, and I am so glad that you came on to talk to our listeners. Sure, no problem. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. That was, folks, that was Sam Monson of Pro Football Focus. Absolutely great interview, great information that you're not going to find anywhere else. Well, you're not going to find it at PFF, but you won't find it anywhere else as far as when I'm getting him on the show. We have that. We have an Empire podcast that I taped last night with Court Robinson. There's lots of content that be up on the site. You can go to Facebook backslash IBN. You can follow us on Econobomb on Twitter or at Econobomb on Twitter. And, of course, EconoclasticallyBombastic.com. Also, rate us on iTunes. Give us five stars if you like what you're hearing. IBN, use your search IBN on iTunes. Until next time, this is the RC Report. RC Carlson here, signing off.